certainly Mr. Richard Rhodes. And I will have you reintroduce yourself in just a second. I was just telling you beforehand. So the book we're talking about today is your book, Why They Kill, which is available on Kindle. And I probably like all books, paperback and hardcover. And I put that in the description as well as uh, links to your other works and your website. But um, I was just telling Mr. Rhodes before we start recording that when I was when I was listening to this, because you can get Kindle to read to you when I was listening to this, it was very unsettling, just all the sort of anecdotes and uh, you know interviews with inmates. And I was like, this might you know, I was like, this might be the most uncomfortable book I've ever read. And then it started to dawn on me. I was like, wait, no, there is another book. And then it and then I realized I was like, and they're both they're both by Mr. Rhodes. And what I just told you was, is the most unsettling book I'd ever read is Masters of Death about the Einsatz group and followed only by this book. So for whatever it's worth, you get first and second place in terms of the most unsettling books I've ever read. But seeing as how I go through books, at least one a week, and those two have been stuck in my mind, I guess that's a, I guess that's a compliment. But before we go any further, Mr. Rhodes, please introduce yourself. So I'm Richard Rhodes. I'm a professional writer and historian. Uh, published about 26 books, if you don't count the ghost-written ones, that I wrote early on when I was trying to support myself. Lots of magazine pieces, lots of writing. That's what I do, and I've done it full-time since 1970. You're absolutely incredible at it. I've, you know, we're discussing a second book of yours, but I've read, I think last time I quoted to you, probably probably embarrassed myself the amount of times I was quoting Dark Sun or making it with the atomic bomb or energy, all absolutely incredible. But so why they kill for everyone listening, I think, I think is a fantastic prequel to Masters of Death. It's, would you agree with that? Oh, sure. Yeah, in fact, Masters of Death was, among other things, an attempt to test the model of violent socialization that I describe and introduce and why they kill against a totally different population, yeah. German police and, and SS recruits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've interviewed Howard Bloom several times, who, who's an author, and uh, you know he, he has some fantastic books, uh, Global Brain, The God Problem, Lucifer Principle, and it's all of these sort of models about, you know, this sort of unconscious mass mind, how we as a population do act in a in a way that like a larger organism would, but none of us are just like all of your cells. None of my cells understand Tommy Kerrigan. None of your cells understand Richard Rhodes. Yet here we are, and he kind of talks about these. And then he has all. And then he has a book that he and I just went over last week called The Muhammad Code, and it's a complete departure from all of his other works until you start to realize, oh wait. This is this applicable model that he talks about everything from chimps to bumblebees to humans. And he takes this thing or even quarks and atoms and then he applies it to Islam. And you see, oh, like a like a good scientific principle, it's reproducible across all fields. And, you know, why they kill all about, you know, inmates, about rape, about drug use, just all these sort of little interviews. And then... Yeah, you apply it to Masters of Death, go back 80 years, and it's still there. For everyone listening, could you explain kind of in short just what are the the stages of uh, of violence and violence, violent development? 
Well, look, let's say, first of all, violence is not, based on this research, is not inherent in the sense that you inherited from a parent or a grandparent. That's been one of the beliefs over the years about how people become violent, that they're born that way. But people aren't born that way. Look at your average little baby and ask yourself if this is a violent creature. I mean, even Adolf Hitler was a little helpless baby once. He became violent. People become violent by going through a process that's part of what sociologists call socialization, which means they go through a process of becoming, how can I phrase this? Becoming, developing an identity that includes as a major component uh, whatever they later are. For example, a doctor, a physician, goes through a process, partly educational, but partly personal transformation, to become someone who's a physician and who feels, of, thinks of herself that way and acts that way and is seen that way by other people. So socialization is the process of developing an identity. And we all do, and we probably do it more than once in the course of our lives. Violent socialization within that larger frame is what a, a, a criminologist named Lonnie Athens, Dr. Lonnie Athens, discovered and researched and 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 laid out in several papers as a young graduate student and then a postdoc at uh, Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley. He did that by interviewing violent criminals who were in prison for violent crimes. He interviewed about 80 altogether, and he interviewed each one about 10 hours each, making notes as he did these interviews. The interviews basically looked at First of all, their crime of record, because he didn't want people just lying to them. This book, by the way, was reviewed in the New York Times by Joyce Carol Oates, the, the uh, novelist. And she said, oh, these people were just telling him stories. These are all lies they told. That's not the way you make people violent. But he started out by interviewing people for their, with their crime of record. And if they lied about that, they didn't know that he'd checked it out. Then he threw out the interview entirely. So the interviews are based on the real experiences these people told him. He would start with a crime of record, the one that put them in prison, and then he'd walk them backward. So what, what went down before that? What was the previous time you went through something violent? And with younger prisoners, he was able to go back all the way to their earliest experiences of using serious violence. So what was the process that led them to the point where they would do something that none of us who are not violently socialized would do except under extreme duress when forced to do, and if under those circumstances, would have traumatic responses. Okay. He found, first of all, that violent individuals begin their socialization by being violently dominated by someone who is credibly violent within their primary group. Now, that could be a parent. And I was surprised at how many mothers <laughs> turned out to be the violent dominators with these guys. But when you think about it, the mothers, especially in the days when Athens did this research, were the ones who were home. Mm -hmm. So 
logical that they might have done, been the ones who, who did these things. Violent domination, something that today we would call child abuse. But this is more than just child abuse. A lot of people experience severe child abuse, but don't become violent. I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. I went severe child abuse and ended up in an institution, a very benevolent institution that, that veered me away from becoming violent into becoming someone who was achieving, but who was focused on writing about violence. Anyway, so violent domination, that could be, and usually is, physical domination, beatings, whippings, all those things. But it can also be, if the person is really incredibly violent, it can just be threats of violence. That's the experience that soldiers have when they're in boot camp and they're being trained by a DI, a drill instructor, who is a veteran, who is a combat veteran, and who therefore is an incredibly violent individual. So violent domination, which leaves the individual feeling helpless, feeling powerful desires for revenge, feeling an increasing sense of, I have got to find some way to break out of this situation so that I don't have to spend the rest of my life being pushed around by other people. Now, one of the ways that clearly some young teens find is suicide. You know, the recent, the recent, uh, wave of suicides among teens, some of that may be something else. But I'm quite sure some of it is is people who are being violently dominated, who decide that the way out is to take their lives, because, of course, that frees them from their violent domination at a terrible price. They give up their lives. But for some of these people, particularly as they reach the point where they're potentially physically capable of fighting back, they reach a point where they, well, I've left out a very important piece. Excuse me, let me go back to this. At the same time that they're being violently dominated, others, or maybe the same people who are violently dominating them, coach them that violence is the answer to being dominated. It seems paradoxical that someone who's beating someone up would be also telling them you ought to fight back. But think about how many parents often fathers who are perhaps defensively violent because they were soldiers or they just simply grew up in a milieu where they learned to use their fists but don't think of themselves as violent and don't go out and pick fights, but they're ready to fight if they need to. People within their primary and secondary groups, people in school, people in the gang, tell them that violence is the answer to their troubles. And for some subset of this group of dominated children who we would, we would call abused children, for some subset of those children, they listen to that and it finally begins to make sense to them. And they think, I've got to try this. Now notice, when they decide to use violence against someone who's threatening them or beating them up, they're putting their lives at risk. They're certainly putting their, their, their physical health at risk to be, to be seriously beaten, to be hospitalized for beating. Uh, so it's not so simple as they saw violence on television and decided they'd try that. They took a great personal risk. If then, and they, so they, they're very calculated about it. They don't necessarily say, 
I'm going to, the next guy that looks sideways at me, I'm going to beat him up. To the contrary, they think, I'm not going to do this unless I'm really pushed to the wall. I'm not going to do this if this guy's so big, I don't think I can take him. But it does often happen, and I think it's a pretty common occurrence in this world we're describing, that the first person someone fights back with is a parent. I think about Bill Clinton, who went through some violent socialization, who told the story of the day when he decided to tell his father, don't you ever hit my mother again, or you'll have to face me. That's a classic example of someone who decides he's going to take that risk. Okay, so he tries it the next time someone's pushing him around in a way that he thinks he could deal with. If he succeeds in this battle with this violent dominator, he is immediately treated differently by the rest of the world around him. He feels enormous achievement for having broken through this terrible state of of unhappiness, of of struggle, of I'm not worth it, I can't do this, I'm going to be pushed around all my life, nobody respects me, nobody talks to me. And he goes the other way. And especially if he has several victories in a row that people know about, and of course he brags about them as soon as he has them, as he is immediately flooded with feelings of superiority, way out of scale to whoever he might be, usually, not always. I mean, I, the, one of my classic stories is, is uh, uh, Mike Tyson. Tyson was small for his age, and he had a high-pitched voice, and he used to get pushed around all the time. He raised pigeons on the roof of the building he lived in, uh, and one day, one of his bull, the bullies who used to pick on him, at a time when Tyson had gotten pretty strong, grabbed one of his pigeons and twisted its head off and threw it down in front of Tyson. And Tyson beat the hell out of him, just floored, laid the guy out. That was the beginning for Tyson of becoming violent, a transformative experience. So, but there are other possibilities as well. The person who wants to try violence may try it and get beaten up. That may lead him either to think, this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to have to find some other way, run away from home, hide out at the library, which is what I did, uh, commit suicide, as we talked about, go to the police, as my brother did when he was being beaten by our stepmother when he was 13. They got us out of that situation without him having to to use violence, which he considered doing when stepmother was attacking him with a baseball bat. His first thought was to grab the bat out of her hands, which he did. But then he really momentarily thought, why don't I hit her with it? Sure. But he had enough in his background. He was a Boy Scout. There were enough kind of moral values that he picked up along the way. That he and we had recently been to the police about getting licenses for our bicycles, and that all connected for him. And he went to the police instead of beating up my stepmother, which would have led him down a totally different path than me as well. Mm-hmm. So it can go a lot of different ways. Another way that someone who's who doesn't win that first conflict can go is to escalate. The guy who goes home and gets a knife or a gun after he's been beaten up in a fight that he's he started or he tried to win in. So lots of different ways that 
this this process of transformation can occur. But when it occurs, and when other people begin to respond to this person with with respect, with fear, they make room for him, they listen to what he has to say. My wife is a clinical psychologist who interviewed violent people in prison. She worked with this model that I'm describing. But uh, one of the guys she had in a group when she raised this question of how did you feel once you started using serious violence, he said, I could walk down the street and everybody got out of my way. There's an enormous feedback at that point. And if this person reads that feedback as success, they're likely to continue using at least defensive violence thereafter. But then there's a subset within this group. Notice not everyone's violent, thank God. Everyone used to be violent a long time ago. We can talk about that. But today, violent levels are very low. They're actually quite low in the United States, despite all the press that the violence gets. Uh, Some subset of this group of defensively violent people begin to see that they could also use violence to do whatever they want. They could use it not only against people who are threatening them or who made them angry. They could also use it against innocent victims, someone who looks at them the wrong way, someone who's got something they want, someone who is in a category that they consider hateful, gay people and so forth, women. Uh, the, the, the high level of domestic violence in the United States comparatively is a good example of men who are by and large cowardly in their, in their confrontation with other men, but are prepared to use violence against their, their, their wives and children, their partners and children. So that's another group. Anyway, when they reach the point where they're prepared to use violence in any situation that, that makes them feel like they, they can get away with it, they're said they are then finally seriously violent people. What's different about their socialization now is they think of themselves as violent people. They act as if they were violent people. Other people see them as violent people. And for a while, they get thrown into a condition where people avoid them. And they're the classic loners of American violence. Because who wants to be around someone who's going to hit you in the head when you look at them the wrong way? But eventually, even then, and Athens added this stage. He had originally a four-stage process. He added one more stage, which is when they begin to join other people who are similarly violent. That's a gang. That's a motorcycle gang. Uh, they, they, They mingle with people of their kind at that point. So this is all not just a learning process. There's a change of one's self-image. There's a change of who you feel you are. It's not different from the kind of change that goes on when people go through a loss in the family, a serious car accident. They need two things. They need the experience of being outside the range of their normal social experience. And they need a coach to help them through. That's roughly the model that Athens worked out by interviewing criminals in prison. So, yeah, I was going to say there's definitely your classic Pavlovian response, right? Where it's maybe it works 
maybe it works when you're pushed to that point and you it's either i mean it's either suicide it's either running away from home or it's confronting you know the force in your life an abusive father a bully a gang member whatever and you kind of have to dial it up to 11 and go you have to strike back and then there's the idea of like well maybe it just starts maybe it just starts working you know and that then it's just you know, I'm not defending it, but I mean, just objectively in the, the course of all evolution of life, when the thing starts working with the giraffe with the taller neck, the shark with the more uh, fluidly dynamic fins, you just keep pursuing that path. And again, I'm not saying it's right, but if if beating the crap out of everyone in your way without there being a violent repercussion, you know, I interviewed at I interviewed at three medical schools. I only got into one. If it had been acceptable for me to reach over the table and punch the dean and I knew I was going to get in as opposed to getting thrown in prison, who's to say I wouldn't do that? You know, I say I wouldn't do that because I think I'm a good person. But as things go along, right, who's to say that, I mean, evolution does end, you know, and and the laws of thermodynamics, it does favor the uh, the path of least resistance. So if it starts working, maybe you strike back at a father and all of a sudden you start getting respect. Well, now maybe, maybe you want your friend's homework or his lunch money and he didn't do anything to you. And you, yeah, you smash him on the jaw. And if there is no repercussions, well, it's open season. The world, the world is yours to take. And And sometimes even if there are repercussions, I think it's important to realize that this is a choice people make. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it bothers people about what prosecutors call the abuse excuse is that they feel as if the agency's been taken out of the of the act that these people but in fact every time people decide to use violence it's not reflexive it's a decision as the police like to say you don't see people committing murder in front of a licensed police officer under normal circumstances yeah no. so they made a decision and that decision can happen very quickly, which is why it can look like it's automatic, uh, which is what a lot of psychiatrists believe, that it's, what do they call it, impulsive, meaning it has no basis in thought. No, people always think about what they're going to do because they're taking a risk. Yeah. They don't know if they hit someone, if the guy's going to pull a knife on them. They don't know if they hit someone, if the person is going to run to, the, to a cop and get them arrested. But remember, violent people fill our prisons. And in fact, prisons are finishing schools for violence. Interestingly, though, and this is another aspect of this whole model, they tend, you tend to age out of being violent. Not everyone, but many people who are seriously violent, who, let's say, have killed people and are in prison for it. As they get older, it's more dangerous to use serious violence. Of course, it is in prison anyway. But even out on the streets, you're taking greater risk because you're not as strong, you're not as quick. Maybe you've got hostages to fortune, as Shakespeare calls it, meaning you have a family now, you have kids. One of the things that the man my wife was talking to in prison, who, when she asked him, why did you join this group, knowing we're going to discuss violence, the guy said, I was on the phone with my little boy the other day, and he was beating up on, his, on one of his toys, and I, didn't, I don't want him to grow up the way I grew up. So different motives change people as they get older. But, but let's, let's be clear, they choose these stages along the way. You don't have to decide you're going to use violence. You can decide to run away. You can decide to do something else. 
So when they do make that decision, overwhelmingly right as it seems to them at the time, it's still a choice, and therefore they're responsible. But we as a society, to the extent that we allow children to be treated this way, uh, are also responsible. And that's why I think the question of how people are treated in prison, whether they get help and support to change or not, is a very important one. Yeah. You can almost, and you can almost see it uh, reflected on much larger scales with nations like brinkmanship or something. Like you have to respond. Uh, uh, I think it was I forget who it was. There's some comedian said it, and I don't even remember if they were talking about Obama or Trump. But at some point, there was like a there was like a missile attack we did somewhere in Syria, Syria or something. It, it was in the news cycle for seventy two hours. It was you know, sure some people died. Not to make light of it. But the the guy was like, like, you know, a lot of people had this, this like, what are we going to do? Are we going to go do boots on the ground in Syria? Is this another war? And the comedian, often as comedians can do, had a very, I think, realistic take. And it was like, this is like a maintenance response. Like, you can't, no, we're not going to go to war with them. And we know that this third world nation is probably going to, you know, do whatever they did again. But there's also this certain level of like, if you're the global hegemon, you can't let I think it was right at the beginning of, of Trump's uh, first or not first Trump's presidency. I think it was Syria. It was a gas attack. And it was like, look, no, we shouldn't go to war with Syria. But there's like there is this idea of almost like maintenance of empire, you know, like Saddam and Kuwait, where it's like at a certain point you do sort of have to. I don't know, maintain your 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 badass reputation, if you will. Like we don't want to go to war with China. China doesn't want to go to war with us. No, nothing is good going to come from that. But if they move on Taiwan or if Russia moves on you know, Donbass, like if you don't do something, it may it may it may snowball into something much larger. And then you see the the other side of that with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, what happens when you have two hegemons? And neither can back down, even though in in their own heads, they might be thinking, God, I hope this doesn't escalate. There is this certain level of like, hey, you know, there are fates worse than death and it's it's looking weak. And luckily, Khrushchev blinked and, you know, Kennedy yeah. so masterfully made it look like he didn't blink, that he actually got concessions with the missiles in Turkey. But sure. you can see where this does go all the way up, you know, if if if. If, you know, what if one small nation in Africa invades the other and the U.N. or the United States doesn't do anything, it's kind of like, all right, yeah, whatever. It's warlords. But when it's if China moves on Taiwan and we don't do anything, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, now who's who's the big power? And it's something like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Maybe that was like the glass ceiling. It was like, hey, this isn't going to erupt into war. This is going to erupt into thermonuclear Armageddon. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, you there are yeah, there are instances where really dramatic example of how nations with nuclear weapons really can't fight with each other. No, you can't skirmish around the edges. We've been doing that now for since the end of the Second World War. Yeah. But have a full scale war. Yeah. Because better destruction on both sides. Yeah, you can you can take yeah. it outside and throw fists. Even right. though, like, we both have guns on our hips. The reality is, is we're both like, please don't pull out your gun because we're both going to die. There yeah. is this sort of, like, you know, you can stick to the fists. 
computers on the table, you bet. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting, I've been thinking for years about how does this model of personal violence development, how does it scale up? Does it scale up? Is there a totally different process going on among nations? And one central thing that I think has been written about a little bit, but ought to be explored more, and that is the peculiar condition of the leader in a country. Who, you know, here's the leader. He may or may not be someone who is personally violent. Some leaders are, obviously are. I mean, Putin was an assassin. Uh, but but Joe Biden's not not was never an assassin. He's not personally violent. Yeah. Nevertheless, he has to make decisions that involve having other people commit violent acts for him. And there, I think, is the key for the leader. I was struck by the fact that Hitler and Himmler and a number of the leaders of the uh, Nazi Germany had only limited personal violent experiences. I mean, Hitler was in the First World War, but he very quickly figured out that the way out of the trenches and being bombarded all the time was to be a messenger. Yeah. Delivered messages from from the, the general behind the lines to the to the colonel in the front lines. So I think of these guys as, as desk murderers, if you will. And the curious thing about it is, remember we talked about how what a rewarding experience it is for someone who's been pushed around by other people suddenly to be able to dominate other people. So here is, I mean, Hitler was severely abused as a child. He was in a coma for four days after one of the beatings his father gave him. So he had a background of that kind of thing. And yet here he was able to aggrandize his power in all the ways that a seriously violent person could without ever having to put himself at risk, yeah. which was, which, which meant among other things that he didn't have to limit his power because if he personally had to kill all those people, that would have been almost impossible. Well, it would have been impossible for him to do. But as the leader of the German people, he could order millions of people killed, and he did order millions of people killed at no cost to himself, but at great glory from his perspective, horror from the rest of us. So it's these guys who are the leaders who are able to order other people to do their killing who are really the scary ones because there's no feedback loop, if you will, that tells them when to stop killing. Yeah. Particularly if they're people who are in, in office as as dictators rather than in a democratic situation. Trump had those 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 senses. First thing he asked when he took took office was, why don't we build a lot more nukes? Why have we only got eighteen hundred nukes? We ought to build a lot more. And someone had to explain to him that you don't really need a lot of nukes. Yeah. Have enough to blow up every major city in the opposing country. You have enough. Then you're good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So it's a phenomenon that I think I wish someone would explore more. How does the leader's influence and his kind of feed of power into into the nation? How does that make these large scale violent experiences like war possible in a way that might not otherwise be? I mean, 
someone has said if you if you took the leaders of two countries and handed them each a spear and put them on a field and said go at it whoever wins will follow you it would be a really different world wouldn't it yeah yeah no it it, it would be yeah the whole idea of yeah you know i'll go to war if the congressman's sons are serving with me like you know it's an entirely different idea uh, yeah the trump thing it makes me think of carl sagan you know new uh 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 an armaments, an, a nuclear armaments race is like two guys standing waist deep in gasoline. One has four matches, the other has three. And it's like, look, man, it's, you know, there's only, but yeah, no, I was thinking about that while, while reading your book and you, you read my mind. If, you know, if Why They Kill is the prequel to Masters of Death, there would need to be a sequel. And it's, is it fractal? Is, does it, and I, I mean, I would, I could see arguments on both sides that says it is and it is not, right? I mean, you have, you have guys like Hitler, Himmler, you know, who were the desk murderers. And it's it's a lot easier to do so when you are, you know, when you're when you're not looking at it, when it's just on paper, you, a, a trust fund baby that doesn't understand the value of money. And then but then you also have like, is the most violent person the one who who gets to power? And I would I would argue not. I mean, sure, you have Bush Cheney, you know, that. That the den of jackals, as the onion said, but then you have someone like Obama, who was you know a very measured guy. Like we still, we're still doing drone strikes in seven countries, but outwardly he wasn't this. You know, we will slaughter our enemies, and it's you know you could say Trump was more uh, uh, bomb bombat. Is that the right word? Bombastic, bombastic. Yeah. Yes, in that yeah. sense. And then Biden, it's like, well, wouldn't you know? The sense what we were talking about earlier, that Pavlovian response, the giraffe with the taller neck, shouldn't it go that way forever? Shouldn't it go that way until it ends? Yet we see that that's not the case because Biden's in office now and, you know, withdrew us from the Middle East and or, or from Iraq and Afghanistan as bad as that was. There were 10 Marines who were killed. I had I had a Marine on here doing the podcast from Kabul. But man, at the same time, like you zoom out and it's like, well, he got us out of the war. It's, it was a terrible ending. But how come how come we didn't elect a more lethal version of Trump? Like it doesn't always play out. How can we go from Eisenhower who I love Eisenhower, but I mean, Supreme allied commander oversaw the largest amphibious invasion of the world. Five-star general becomes the president sets up the nuclear bunker system, you know, the, the tippy top of the spear. And then we elect JFK. Who's like, what are we doing? Like, why do we need to be wanted to end the, wanted to end the, the, the kind of lethal aspects of the of the space race. Why can't we work together? Why do we need to escalate in Vietnam? Now, granted, it seems like the powers that be didn't like him too much. But we do have these weird things where we don't always, sometimes we do. Sometimes we go from a, a Carter to a Reagan, but then we go from an HW to a Clinton. It's not always, it doesn't always follow the path of the taller giraffe. It's a weird thing to that to me says, it's not perfectly fractal. No, and it's really is a different process to elect a leader. And of course, in times of war, you get a different mix. Someone has talked and written about the, the uh, what's the word he uses? The, the appearance or the, the, the movement to the front lines of the psychopath in times of war. And I think you do see some of that exactly because you need people who are prepared to kill and kill cold in cold blood. 
uh, not that that's really the way it works, but for some people it does. So there's that aspect. But but by and large, what goes on to elect a leader is a different mechanism entirely. I mean, let's face it, Hitler came to power officially by election, but in fact by by violent dominance of a whole society, mm-hmm. very carefully done sabotage and so forth. And then the very careful choice of a big scapegoat, the Jews. Yeah explain why the Germans lost the First World War. There's a real sense where the Second World War for Germany was a continuation of the First World War. They felt they hadn't really lost, that somehow they'd been betrayed, that they, after all, they still had plenty of troops around and so forth. So it became an easy argument from Hitler's point of view to say, we were tricked, we didn't really lose. We should go back and finish the job and kill all those damn Jews who caused this tr- this trouble and brought it on us. So, so lots of different mechanisms involved. But I'm but when you get down to the question of of direct, well, I didn't quite finish this model. So, who's the who's the national leader responsible to? All the people below him say he told us to. Who told him to? And there, the answer that, that makes it circular is the people told him to. Yeah, they elected him. Yeah. That's <laughs> right back again. So really nobody told anyone to. We're all just pointing. It was him. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, responding to the will of the people. What are the people doing? We're responding to the will of the leader. And around we go. Yeah. Now, I would say that, you know, on one hand, we do see where with Hitler, it does seem to be more of a a simple reflection of the very model you're talking about, right? We could say that, and it's not accurate, but in his mind, you know, uh, we lost, we lost the war, the Treaty of Versailles, you could, I mean, you could argue completely emasculated you. I mean, it's like being beaten up at school, you know, that that book, uh, The Arms of Krupp, right? I mean, they talk about how they kept producing, or like, you know, how the, the Krupa, like dynasty, they said it was kind of weird because all of a sudden you had these proud men, this 400 year old company. And it's like, now we're producing like hubcaps. Like, no, we produce like iron for, you know, it was a very emasculating, right. You have inflation and then like a kid being, you know, abused at home. Well, of course you got to have a scapegoat. I mean, you go to school and you beat up the kid who has nothing to do with you or you, or you abuse an animal, which is, you know, all the telltale signs. So you choose the Jews. So you do have this sort of the Treaty of Versailles sort of, you know, raped us of our manhood. We lost the first world war. We lost the great war, the war to end all wars. And wow, we're the ones that lost it. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. We really didn't. And yeah, so it wasn't that my dad beat me up. He caught me on a bad day. If I, you know, you give me another chance, you know, I can go back and really set things straight. And then you got this guy coming to power that says, that is what happened. You people didn't lose the war. It was taken from you. We still have all the he- the heavy industry. We still have all the the iron ore, the steel, the Krupp, uh, the Krupp dynasty. Like, we still have the engines of war. What are we going to do, you know? let's And not only that. We're superior. And then what do they start doing? You start using violence. And what do you get? You get appeasement. You get positive feedback. Let's do this. Hey, lower the unemployment. Start cranking out those tanks. Okay, we're all feeling good about ourselves. You know, the Olympics and the the midnight torch parades. And it's all of a sudden it's like, hey, hey, this is our world. Let's go take it. And you see exactly where that goes. And then 
you know, it, it, and then the nation that ends up winning, well, obviously the Soviet Union always gets discounted. The nation that ends up winning is the nation that was trying for the longest time to not fight. So it's in one breath, you have that perfect representation of your model, which is then smacked around by the opposite. It's like, wait, what? The, you know, FDR. And it's like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Like, they hit us, right? Pearl Harbor. They came and punched us in the face and was like, okay, well, I didn't want to fight, but now that we are, you know, what did we do? We bulldozed them. We went, we went back home and got the butcher knife. We went there and then we bulldozed all the way to the Pacific and then dropped two nukes. And it was sort of like, and then you could say that, well, we got positive feedback. We became the global, global hegemon. We had the golden age of the U S economy, man. It's, I mean, did we not get positive feedback from becoming just the most lethal fighting force ever? It's yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm talking myself in circles. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I I don't know how much the, the individual personal model of personal violence maps against the large scale thing. Obviously, the large scale picture is much more complicated. But there are elements that are there, and it would it will be interesting to see who can make those connections. But I do think it's important to look at the leaders in terms of this particular phenomenon of of cowards, desk murderers who get aggrandized as if they were seriously violent without having to take the risk that really violent people take whenever they use serious violence. Yeah. That's an interesting question to me. Yeah. And I hope someone who's young is listening and has the lifetime to look into it. But I'm farther down the road, so oh, it's nonsense. That's that's not a good answer. I was hoping you were going to announce your next book and say it's all about. I don't know the answer. That's the thing. I think someone who's got more preparation in terms of the history of the 20th century is going to have to dig into that. What I do know, and what I think is really of great and deep relevance here, is that as Niels Bohr and Robert Oppenheimer and the others who developed nuclear weapons realized, that was going to change everything. It's, I mean, Oppenheimer's image, you were talking about one image for nuclear weapons standing in a pool of gasoline. Oppenheimer's wonderful image was, we're like two scorpions in a bottle, yeah. capable of killing the other, but only at the risk of their own lives. That's just about as good an image as I've ever heard for the condition the world is in now. And although that's not a happy situation, it's better than than losing 400,000 of your young men to war or, or 20 million people in the case of the Soviet Union during World War II. Horrific, terrible, terrible death and destruction. The destruction of all the infrastructure that had been built up over so many years, all going down to ruin. You know, what really turned it for the German people, I think, was the fact that they had a hyperinflation uh, as a result partly of the Versailles dis- decisions, but also just as the result of the destruction of, of, well, not so much of their plant. They still had their physical plant, but their money suddenly became worthless. I remember reading, you could you could go to an opera with your whole family for the price of an egg. You'd hand someone an egg and they'd give you opera tickets for the whole evening. And that was just one example. The fact is it destroyed the middle class, a group that had been comfortable before, and they had to find a scapegoat. 
So, yes, they found a scapegoat. Hitler provided them with a convenient scapegoat. It was easier to believe in the anti-Semitic world of, of Europe during those years than, than the one that was true, which is they lost the war. <laughs> what yeah. do you expect? Yeah. Von told me once, I interviewed him once for the Paris Review. He said, you know, we destroyed all the physical plant in Russia and, and the Germany uh, but we didn't destroy our own. So they got to rebuild brand new factories and everything. <laughs> and we were still left with our old factories. It was an interesting image. Yeah, read that. Yeah, it's like burning, burning your farm. So you get that fresh, like nitrogenated soil. And it's like, wait, it's, there's a weird thing though. Cause you know, we look at like the gross number of deaths and then the, I guess, uh, almost like adjusted for inflation, adjusted for population, the adjusted number of deaths has been going down since 1945. And as much as I'd love to pat ourselves on the back and go, we've become a more peaceful people. What it really was, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, there was, you know, we, we were all in gym class and it's a bunch of 15 year old guys starting to build muscle, you know, testosterone. And for like that whole semester, I remember there kept kind of being arguments in the locker room. We'd just gotten to high school. So that was a whole new experience. We're all working out. No one really knows what to do. It's a weird environment. But I remember just in general, there was like an increased tension in the locker room and a lot of shit talking. And I finally remember one day, one of the kids just, just the, the talking stopped and he just threw a haymaker, like a Mike Tyson haymaker against my friend's face. And I remember it went quiet. And there was never there was never a fight within our grade for the next seven semesters of college. And it just oh. ended. And it was terrible. And I think the kid got a detention, maybe a suspension. I think he's doing fine now. It's not important. It's kind of like Hiroshima and Nagasaki might have been that. It was there was a haymaker. And those were the little bombs, as you know. Oh, and it's it's have we become more peaceful or did did the haymaker turn into a pistol and someone got shot and it sucked the oxygen out of the room? And in that sense, you can't really argue that peace has, has won. It has, but it's only won because the mechanisms of violent violence have become so astronomical. I mean, thermonuclear warheads delivered from orbit from ICBMs, like uh, yeah. it, it's become so complete that there, it seems like they're like you said. We've been on the fringes of it: Korea, Vietnam, war on terror. You know, we have all these little skirm. Even now, like Donbass or or Taiwan, and it's like we can only push this so far. And from one point, you go, "Yeah, well, we're a more peaceful people." And it's like, "Well, we're more peaceful people because the violence is now." So there is this weird, like, almost like a like a. I don't know, not like a bell curve or like an asymptote or something. I don't know. I'm terrible at math. There is a <laughs> point where the the violence became so horrific that all the it's like the the guy that invented the Gatling gun. He invented it because he thought it would make war so unpalatable that war would stop. And the reality is, is everyone just started buying them. But it did end up working in '45. It became so unpalatable. Everyone along the way, every time a new weapon of war came along, they would say, this is going to do it. This is going to... And they were never enough. Yeah. The Air Force during the Second World War was trying to prove that they could win the war just with air power. <clears throat> but they didn't have enough planes and chemical ordinary explosives. 
But when the bomb came along, suddenly Curtis LeMay and his gang realized they actually did have. Unfortunately, they didn't move to the next step, which was, therefore, we can't do this. Yeah. He believed that he could somehow destroy the entire Soviet Union and China, and then we would all be fine. Because no one had thought through some of the other consequences nuclear winter being the obvious one, uh, the reduction of annual average temperatures to 20 below zero for, for 10 or 15 years, yeah. which killed everyone on Earth and almost all the critters as well. Maybe someone in a cave with a lot of canned goods might have survived, but other than that. So so the changes, the changes that came, I think, were not so much whether we're still violent, but we're restrained as that we found a natural science found, a natural limit, which paradoxically turns out to be the fact that there's an unlimited amount of energy available to use for explosives if you care to go that route. So I always think of this as the, this, you know, science has systematically over the centuries confronted various prejudices that human beings have. We thought we were at the center of the universe, the Earth. Galileo showed that we weren't, Galileo and Copernicus. We thought that we were a separate creation of God. Darwin demonstrated that we're not, even if some people still don't believe that, and so forth. Each stage along the way, science, as, as Niels Bohr once put it, gradually alleviated our prejudices and, and removed us from a world where we think something and believe something ferociously and religiously that simply isn't true when you look at the evidence. What science did in 1945 would show, I mean, what's more? Two sides get together and, and fight each other with explosive materials and or swords and human beings until they get to the point where one side no longer believes its cause is worth the, 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 the destruction involved. And at that point, that side surrenders. And in a fair war, the other side says, we'll stop too. We're the victors. You're the loser. We'll take it from here and work it out. But when you have nuclear weapons, that situation no longer obtains. You have a world where if one side attacks you and you attack them similarly with nuclear weapons, both sides are destroyed. So there's no point in having the war in the first place. That was the point that Niels Bohr took to Roosevelt and Churchill in 1944 and tried to explain to them. That, that there's not going to be any possibility of victory anymore. Therefore, there's no point in having a war. You'll just destroy everything. Yeah. Unfortunately, Churchill's country was bankrupt, and he didn't get the point. He said, oh, they're just a bigger kind of artillery. Well, he was wrong, but, but at the time, it's understandable that he might have misunderstood. In any case, my point, science, in a way, bounded the nation state, one of the most destructive human inventions of all time, if you think about wars with between countries, bounded the nation state with a physical reality that it had not confronted before, which is there's an unlimited amount of energy in the world available to use for whatever pur pur purpose you want to use. And if you want to destroy each other, that's one thing you can do with it. And at that point, everyone kind of woke up and said, oh, well, we're going to have to find some other way to play these games with each other. 
And we did. We found little side wars, none of which we ever won, by the way. Yeah. We didn't win in Vietnam. We didn't win in Korea. Korea ended up just exactly where it was before, still is, and so on. So it hasn't been a victory. It's just been skirmishing. And and again, a million deaths a year, which has been the average ever since 1945, is God knows nothing to be proud of. But we lose six to seven million people a year from smoking. So if you think of this in the largest scale, which is the one that really has interested me, the scale of public health, people used to die primarily from disease, epidemic disease. In the 19th century, with the discovery of germs and the discovery of immunization and the realization that if you cleaned up the water supply and took care of the sewage, that people could live cleaner lives that would mean less disease, we basically conquered uh, biologic death, the death that was caused by the biological conditions we lived under. That's why an epidemic like the one we're going through now is such a shock to everybody because we haven't had one since polio. And that was way back when I was an eight-year, nine-year-old boy a long time ago, believe me. So... So we sort of got biologic death under control, and we did it by using technology, essentially, clean water, clean sewage, and so forth. We've never gotten man-made death under the same kind of control until 1945. And then science brought out something that looked so different from what it really was that everybody jumped in and said, I want one of those. But when a few places got them, everyone said, uh, uh-oh, we can't really use things. I think of them almost as bombs, almost as, as vaccines, as inoculants, as a way that we keep them around, and we shouldn't keep them around, but we do keep them around, to remind us that there's a destructive situation out there that, that's way beyond our range, that we can't deal with that we need to stay away from. And everybody seems to get it, which surprises me. I mean, maybe Hitler wouldn't have gotten it. He probably would not have. But everyone since then at the brink, I mean, the fact is Khrushchev really came close to launching those missiles. Uh, Fidel Castro told him he should. Castro said, let me have them. I'll use them. They'll reach Washington, D.C. Let's blow the hell out of the place. And Khrushchev understood well enough what they could do that he said, no, if we can make some kind of deal with Kennedy, at least get those damn missiles out of Turkey that threaten us with five-minute delivery times, uh, we'll, 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 take, we'll, we'll move out. And they did move out. Yeah, it's this, it's this sort of like beautiful like representation of karma where it's truly what goes around comes around, like in 30 minutes. <laughs> if you deliver a nuclear punch, you get your karma. It doesn't come 10 years down the road. It's it's coming into your atmosphere at, at reentry speeds in 30 minutes. Like it's, I mean, it's karma. It's the truest sense of, you know, it's, you maybe yes. don't see it if you were abused by your father and then you become an abusive father. It's almost like, it's almost like the delay is too long. Maybe you like that guy in prison. He 
he he's on the phone with his son. He's like, oh, I don't want my son to grow up this way. You kind of have those those slivers of exceptions to where, and that is, and I know we're coming up on an hour, but that is one point I kind of wanted to slip in here is your book provides a very kind of, uh, a beautiful and unique look at the concept of karma, where it's like the only way that you can sort of end this is you you just you metaphorically and in some cases literally you take it on the chin you have an abusive father you raise a son and you don't unleash it and that also means that you don't beat the dog and it means that you don't you know go kill women you just kind of you put it on your shoulders and if you can take it into the grave kind of like encapsulating nuclear waste and putting it away in a sense you can kind of remove that little toxic aspect from the world and it really is it's it's like the most noble thing you can do because you get hit. You're, you're playing musical chairs and you don't get to dish it back out, but it's, it's sort of the most honorable thing you can do in this life is to receive trauma and just take it inside like a spent fuel rod and put it away. And it's like, it's beautiful. But let's say on top of this, let's say it's possible to reverse violent socialization. Mm-hmm. Now, it has not been developed into a system, primarily because the sociology and psychology communities have not fully accepted Lonnie Athens' model of how people become violent. There are lots of different theories out there. There's a whole long chapter in Steven Pinker's book about the decline of violence, where he jumbles together all the different theories about why people are violent in a great big mess. And I remember talking with him when he was working on this book and saying, you ought to look at Lonnie Athens' work. And he dismissed it because it wasn't in his list of, of favorite authors or whatever. But but he, it is possible to reverse violent socialization. The evidence for that is simply that people, as they get older, who are seriously violent, very often find a way to reverse it themselves. It essentially involves walking yourself back through the same process making it conscious again after it's disappeared into your the back of your mind, thinking it through again. We had a dear friend in Connecticut, my wife and I, when we lived there, who was had been seriously violent. And when we got to talking about this, he suddenly revealed himself as someone who had, he had, for example, been someone who burgled homes with a buddy. And once his buddy had had uh, kept out some of the loot, and he kneecapped him. He shot him in the knee. So his buddy got the lesson that you don't do that. So he was obviously seriously violent, but he was in love with a woman who who told him, look, you can either hang out with that gang of yours or you can marry me, but you can't do both. And in, in addition, he was picked up once and spent a weekend in jail and didn't like that experience at all. Out of those two experiences, he explained to us, he decided he wasn't going to use violence anymore. And he didn't. However, it was really agonizing for him when, when somebody cheated him on some building materials to enlarge his store. He had a store. Uh, he stay awake for three nights agonizing. He said, you know, it's so easy, much easier to take care of business with a baseball bat than it is going to court or whatever. And we're just fascinated with this guy because he had been seriously violent and he had decided he didn't want to be that anymore and he wasn't anymore and he'd worked his way through that, but he still knew how effective it could be 
if you forget about the dangers of going to jail. Yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's getting your ass kicked, and you know that you have like a revolver in your car, and you're like, this could. I'm getting embarrassed, and you know, I have two black eyes. But there's this sort of like, well, if I get my ass kicked, I can go home, put an ice pack on it, and, may, and maybe not show my face in this town anymore, or I can, or I can have the glory of winning. But perhaps I go to jail and now I don't get to see my kids or go to the bar or go to a nice restaurant anymore. So it is, yeah, you got to wonder. Yeah, you always got to wonder, like, I mean, I always imagine that when you get to that rarefied air of like a Bezos or a Musk or a Bill Gates, like, you know, corporate espionage or, you know, it's at one point, at some point you almost got it. You have the world at your fingertips. You have all these connections. At some point you're almost like, or if you're a defense contractor, if you're making these things to destroy people and all of a sudden you've got like business competition, well, instead of becoming a better business, it's like, why don't we just hire some mercenaries? It's like, there's got to be, but then you have that, you know, that choice. I, I don't want to be that person. Maybe it's, this is what separates us is that we do have competition and lower prices and Black Friday sales instead of just going to the other person's neighboring town and raping and pillaging. It's like, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And again, those people are not necessarily people who have been through violent socialization. Correct. They well have been through part of it, some of the stages. Yeah. Given their practices, I would guess they probably have. They probably didn't finish the whole thing. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's, who knows? Maybe Curtis LeMay would have been a more effective business leader. You know, maybe he would have, uh, I don't know. It seems, it seems like, uh, it seems like, uh, there's a book called House of God, and we'll we'll wrap it up with this. But there's a book called House of God, and this the pen name is Samuel Shem. I believe it was written in the seventies. It was just an it was like a an unfiltered look at residency uh, for medical students, and it was it's like the it's like the unofficial must read for students going to medical school. And man, it, it I remember reading it, and that I re- I read it the summer that I got into medical school, and is it a coincidence that I ended up not going to medical school? There are a lot of factors. That book was one of them because you're just yeah. like, oh, my God. And um, this guy went to Harvard Medical School, did his residency at Mass General. It's just insane. But there's a guy in there, and he, he I forget the name. I think he calls him Fats. But there's this guy, and he was like a fat Jewish guy. And the author's like, this is the smartest person I had ever met. He he could ace every class. He could do. He got into you know Harvard, Yale. It's he could do anything. And you know, people would ask him, they're like, "Dude, how come you haven't begun come and went and go and become a an investment banker? You could be retired at thirty. You're just one of those guys." And his response was always, "Because medicine is the biggest game in town. I'll never master it. Like you'll always have a patient that dies, yeah. and yeah. he could sink his teeth into it forever." Right. I kind of see that with Curtis LeMay. It's, you know, sure. I mean, you, you talk about it in Dark Sun, the Sunday punch, killing a nation. It's almost like the Cold War was designed for Curtis LeMay. He knew he could never win it. It was the, it was the hundred-sided Rubik's Cube. He could just, and that's kind of what I think Elon Musk is doing. It's the, you become the richest man in the world. Can you make us multiplanetary? It's the game that he can play for the rest of his life and never... Maybe never win, but it's a non-zero chance that he'll win. 
I think any any really rich profession. I mean, writing is certainly that way. Yeah. I can write until the day I die, and I'll never finish. There's always something else I'd like to explore and write about. Um, there was something I wanted to throw in here. Oh, people wonder, well, if violent people use violence to get what they want, how is that different from people who aren't violent? And it's curious. Violent people work up to a decision to use violence very much the same way anyone works up to a decision about an action. But when they reach that particular point that they've got in their list, they think, now I can use violence. The situation is appropriate. This person has done this. They've stolen some money from me. Whereas the rest of us, we go other ways. We decide to cheat. We decide to divorce. We decide, most of all, to go to court and sue someone in a court of law, which is what was invented to substitute for universal violence a long time ago, and it has done very well. We, we, we gossip. We find all these kind of bourgeois ways to deal with the problem that don't involve physically harming another human being, although in the end they may end up physically harmed indeed. They may be pouring out on the street or whatever. Yeah. But so, so we have ways of dealing with the same thing that violent people deal with. They're just not illegal, let's put it that way, or illegally, violently illegal. I, I'm not sure how to phrase that because people certainly commit all sorts of illegal acts. Yeah. So, so the point is, it's not automatic. It's not inherited. It's not impulsive. It's a learned process that leads you to make a decision to use violence because your identity is that of a violent person. It seems like we could we could almost you can almost like suspend violence. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of people that go to yeah. We almost have yeah. 5.4 per hundred thousand is a very low violence rate. The rate in Europe is one to one point five. The rate in Japan is below one per hundred thousand. Murders, I'm using homicides because you can count them easily. So most societies, most advanced industrial societies, have found ways to suspend violence. And again, it's mostly using the law. But countries that are sort of in turmoil, Russia, 20 per 100,000. Uh, South America, Colombia, 50, 60 per 100,000. Something like some of our worst inner cities. Uh, Papua New Guinea at one point was a thousand per hundred thousand. Everybody was killing her. There was no centralized control of violence. So everybody had to be violent. So they were raised to be violent. They were beaten up to be violent by their parents. They were taught to be violent. But we've reached a point in the West where we'd really rather not, by and large, except for people in circumstances where they don't see any other way out. Yeah. where they're not protected by the police, where they don't have, for whatever reason, access to the law, and so forth. Yeah, it it seems like, and it's not really, you know, it's like people that, people that go to AA, you know, friends I have, they often become like complete caffeine addicts. And it's like, well, it's still a substance, but it's like, you know what, it, it's better yeah. than, it's I wish you were 100% sober, but if you're going to be drinking coffee at 8 a.m. instead of vodka, like, I'll take that as a win. Or, you know, people that are maybe sure. on, on Suboxone instead of heroin. And it's like, 
Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes you just you take the win for what it is. You're like, okay, good enough. Seized, get degrees. It's almost like it's like a Curtis LeMay. It's like you'd love to see Curtis LeMay with like a with like a necklace made of flowers meditating, and you know. <laughs> but at a certain point, you go, maybe maybe we just give them strategic air command and we just let them play with nuclear bunkers and second and third strikes and decapitation strikes. We never actually go to war, but it's almost like an outlet. We just prepare for war. And it seems like maybe that's the way the cold war might be the most like peaceful, you know, it's not quite sobriety, but all things considered, it's not world war one and world war two. You go, Hey, you know, if we're just building nuclear bunkers and silos and putting satellites up and SDI and, you know, maybe screw it. If you're going to drink eight coffees a day, it's better than vodka and just take the win. And the fact is public health really is harm reduction. If we let go of all of the controls we have over epidemic disease, as we saw with President Trump's mishandling mm-hmm. of the, the COVID plague, uh, things come back. So we have to have a perpetual watch going on all these things. And that's just as true with nuclear weapons as it is with anything else. So they have to be in, maybe they don't have to be in the bunkers, but we have to be aware that they're possible. That's to me the bottom line. We have to be aware they're possible and therefore take them into account in a very profound and serious way. Maybe we need to, maybe we just need a good old alien invasion. We can all unite and just fight. <laughs> and just fight. We haven't really evolved, but you know what? Who knows? Maybe we just got to exert the violence somewhere else. I'm writing a work of fiction right now that's about that very subject. So oh, Yes. yes. <laughs> when, it, when is that going to be out? You know, it's, I've got to stop and write something to make a living with for a while, but it'll be done eventually, I hope, if I live so long. Nonsense. You don't need to write books. Just start robbing stores. You're at, but why they kill? You're at a whole book on it. Just, you know, screw writing. Me and Richard Rhodes, we're going to go get some baseball bats and start finding marks. That's how we'll pay the bills. But, uh, Mr. Rhodes, thank you so much for coming on here. I would love to have you on again. I will let you decide which of your books we discuss. If you would be so kind to come back on my podcast. I enjoy speaking with you. So thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. Why They Kill, available on Kindle as well as paperback, hardback. Put it all in the description as I did last time. All your books, all your works, your websites will all be in the description. So just go in there if you'd like to find more of Mr. Rhodes' work. If you haven't read Masters of Death yet, read this one first and then Masters of Death. They, they... Book, scientist to biography of the scientist Edward O. Wilson, just published at the beginning of November. So it's out right now. Oh, that's your newest work? It's already out? It is. It is indeed. Here you are. It's not. All right. Dr. Wilson, let's see if I can get him in focus for you. Yeah, for a second. It came in for a second. What's the problem here? Where's the camera? <laughs> it came in for a second. No, where does it go? That's I don't know. It's I think it'll I think your camera's only recognizing your face. <laughs> That's funny. It's got my fingers. Anyway, it's out. And it's I think people would find it interesting. When what's the name of it again? It's about scientist. It's about the great biologist Edward O. Wilson, world's leading expert on ants and much else besides. Well, I think that should be the next podcast we do. Definitely. I will grab it. I will get through it. 
and I can't wait to talk to you again, sir. Okay. Thank you so much. Mr. Rhodes, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for coming on here. Your works are just my favorite in the world. Again, Dark Sun, I will never stop fanboying about that. I love it. I love talking to you. You are a living legend, and I am so incredibly humbled to have you on here. Thank you, sir. Until next time, take care. God bless. Stay safe, everybody. Recording stopped.